I want you to listen to the words of these lyrics. When success is equated with excess, the ambition for excess wrecks us. As the top of the mind becomes the bottom line, when success is equated with excess, I want out of this machine. It doesn't feel like freedom. Uh, This ain't my American dream. I want to live and die for bigger things. I'm tired of fighting for just me. This ain't my American dream. These are words to a song written by a guy named John Foreman, who's the front man to a band called Switchfoot. And the song tackles head on this idea of the American dream and really tackles this concept of excess and says that this is really a real problem, which I believe is true. Excess is a problem in our world and in our culture, but our culture will tell you that it's, it's kind of innocent. It's not that big a deal. But the deal is, with, when it comes to excess, behind excess is a big, dirty lie that we believe about God. If we're struggling in overindulging, if we're struggling in excess, there's a lie that we believe about God, and that's essentially what we're going to talk about this morning. And so I, I hope that this conversation is helpful for us as we continue on this week with our last of the seven deadly sins that we're tackling in this seven-week series. We've gone through and talked about a whole bunch of different things, and for me personally, I've really enjoyed this series. It's been refreshing to me to kind of go through and talk about some of these specific areas and how... God gives us a way out in these different sins and struggles. The conversation's really been one where we've talked about this idea that it's not a a question of if you struggle with these things, but rather when you struggle with these things, how does God provide for us a way out in these, in these issues? I've sat there in the, in the room with you guys and, you know, we'll, we'll come in and we'll talk about something. Maybe it's like laziness or maybe it's, it's the issue of pride or some of the other things that we've talked about. And as I sat there, sit there, I'm like, I don't think this is a real big struggle for me. But as we jump into the message more and more, I'm like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I get this. Like, this makes sense. Like, this is a struggle. This is an area that I need God's grace and his help in. And so it's been a really helpful series because we've, we've said that the, the title of the series is A Way Out. It's not, hey, seven things to stay away from or you'll get in trouble. It's, it's, it's a way out. How does God provide for us in these moments, in these struggles, a way out, a way of victory? And so as we jump into the conversation today, I felt like here at the end of the series was an appropriate time for us to take just a minute or two to talk about sin and temptation and how they affect a Christian and a non-Christian just in a general sense before we talk about the specific sin. Now, if you're not a Christian in this room today, we're really grateful that you're here. I realize that any given Sunday we have non-Christians in the room, people who are kind of exploring faith and just figuring out what's going on. And so for you to gauge in this spiritual conversation is a really cool thing. So Thank you for being here, but if, if that's the place that you find yourself, if you, if you would say, I'm not a Christ follower yet, I don't really identify as a Christian, you live and make decisions that are contradictory to God's will and His plan, but you do so without even realizing it. And so we would say that those things are sins, that these things are kind of piling up between you and God. And so there's this like pile of, of things that are, that are, are blocking a relationship from existing, And this is a problem that we all struggle with. If you read into the Bible, what you'll see is it says that nobody is righteous, not even one, which means we all have things that have come between us and God, even the most perfect people. And so even if you lived a life from here on out that was pretty much perfect or tried to, there wouldn't be enough good things that you could do to eradicate that broken relationship with God, to make things right again. 
But the message of the gospel, the message of the Christian faith is that God didn't want to leave it like that. He wanted to send his son to come, and this is what we celebrate at Easter, to come and to die for us, for all of our sins, for the sins of all of humanity, for all of time. He wanted to come and to die so that that pile could be dealt with. So that those sins could be eradicated. It says that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. And that's good news to us. And so that's who Jesus is and what he does. Now, if you're a Christian, what happens is you've said, Jesus, I need you to come and to help me with these sins so that I can be in right relationship with God. And when we make that decision, I feel like some of us get a little bit confused because we continue to struggle with temptation and with sin. And we're like, hey, what's the deal? Like, when I became a Christian, wasn't that stuff done with? Like, why do I still struggle with temptation? Why do I still struggle with leaning towards these sins? And the issue is we live in this period of time in which temptation is still a struggle because we live in a world full of sins. We live in bodies that lean towards sin. If you read through the scriptures, what you'll see is Paul describes it quite often as our flesh, our natural desires, our natural tendencies towards sin. And so when you guys are tempted as Christians, that is normative. Like that isn't something that's bad. Even Jesus was tempted, okay? The question is when you're tempted, how are you going to respond? Are you going to give in to the temptation because that's when sin takes place? Or are you going to look for a way out, which is what we've been talking about in this series? We shouldn't sin. Sin is bad. Sin is not helpful. There's grace if we do sin. But really what we're looking for in the moment of temptation is a way out. And so I've got this little phrase that I'm hoping is helpful for you this morning in your listening guides. It simply is this, the way out of sin is provided by God through Jesus, like we just talked about, and illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit. Really the key for this whole series that we've been talking about is saying, yes, we need Jesus to provide for us a way out and we also need his Holy Spirit, which as Christians we believe he lives inside of us, to convict us and to lead us towards right living, towards making decisions that honor him, towards finding a way out in the moment, in the second of temptation. And so hopefully that's, hopefully that's a little bit helpful to kind of think of it in those terms. We're all going to struggle with temptation. The real question is, how are you going to deal with it in that moment? Are you going to allow God's Holy Spirit to guide you to finding a way out in that moment? So as we continue on, we're going to look at a specific sin today. And the sin is that of excess. That shouldn't surprise you. It's defined in this list of seven sins as the sin of gluttony. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Gluttony. Uh, gluttony is an interesting word. Gluttony and greed, which we talked about last week is one of the sins, go hand in hand. They kind of are, are running mates, if you would. But gluttony is defined for us by Merriam-Webster Dictionary as the excess, uh, uh, sorry, excess in eating or drinking. The second definition, though, that they give us, which I think is more useful, is greedy or excessive indulgence. Some of us believe that gluttony is just simply food worship, which it is. And so when you think of gluttony, you think of characters maybe like Homer Simpson uh, or maybe uh, Jabba the Hutt if you're like a Star Wars fan or, or maybe you think of the clumps from uh, Eddie Murphy's Nutty Professor movies or something like that. Uh, maybe you think of uh, things like all-you-can-eat buffets or hot dog eating competitions, all that sort of stuff. I remember as a kid growing up in Australia, 
We didn't have half as many buffet places as you guys do, right? So this concept of, of a buffet to like a seven, eight-year-old was like blowing my mind. I went to Pizza Hut one time and I heard that you could eat all you could eat. And this was like the first time I'd ever heard of that. And so I remember as a kid just like over, completely overdoing it as a kid, just eating as much as I could physically stuff into my body because it was free. You know what I mean? Like this all-you-can-eat idea was getting away at me. But what I want you to see today is that gluttony stretches much further than just this area of food. Gluttony is an inordinate desire to consume more than that which one requires. And so our working definition for today is gluttony is the sin of overindulgence. That's a pretty simple definition for us. So let's be explicitly clear. Gluttony is overindulgence in eating, in drinking, in sex. We can have gluttonous tendencies in how we watch TV, how we approach social media. We can have these same tendencies in the way that we exercise or even our hobbies. We can be excessive in our saving, in our spending, and we can be excessive in our overscheduling of our time. Excess plagues us in many areas. And so today, I hope that you don't walk in and be like, oh, gluttony, yeah, this isn't my issue. This is all our issue. I really do believe that we struggle in excess in different areas in our lives. And so as we engage in this, allow God and His Holy Spirit to really lead us through this conversation. Thankfully, the Bible isn't quiet on this issue. If you go into the Scriptures, what you'll see is that actually quite a few times throughout Scriptures, this idea of gluttony and excess and is, is tackled head-on multiple times. And so in the Scriptures, rather than going to a couple of Proverbs or a couple of verses from the New Te- Testament about gluttony today, what I thought would be helpful would be for us to engage in a story about gluttony. Stories are helpful because they really help us with an interpretation of the truth and an application of the truth, not just a truth by itself, okay? So let's jump into a story in Numbers chapter 11. Can you guys grab your Bibles and turn to Numbers 11 with me? Numbers 11 is an interesting passage, and I want to give you a bit of background as you're turning there this morning. We're going to read certain portions of this story, not the whole thing. It's kind of got a few things going on at the same time, but it's part of the story of the people of Israel. And if you know anything about the people of Israel, you know that they're God's chosen and special people. God has rescued these people out of slavery in Egypt, where they've been enslaved by Pharaoh. And he's taken them and he's led them through the wilderness to the Red Sea, where Pharaoh pursued them. And then he gives them this miraculous provision where he opens up the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground and then the sea collapses in and destroys Pharaoh's army. They go on further on in the journey and they head to Mount Sinai. As they get to Mount Sinai, God again provides for them uh, in creating this relationship with them. He says, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And they make this covenant relationship. He gives them in that moment the law, which is kind of some guidelines for their relationship. The Ten Commandments, all of that was given at Mount Sinai. And they continue on in this journey towards the promised land. It's a long journey, right? But as they go, God provides for them in multiple and amazingly miraculous ways. As they're going along on their journey, uh, Moses hits this rock, this rock with his staff as God instructs him, and water comes gushing out of this rock, and the people drink from that. As they're traveling through the desert, there's this cloud, this cloud that goes, this pillar that kind of goes before them and leads them, but also overshadows them and provides them some shade from the hot desert sun. 
And in the evening time, which I don't know if you've ever traveled in the desert, in the evening time, it goes from being really hot to being really cold. It turns into a pillar of fire that gives them warmth and gives them light in the desert. It's incredible how God provides for them day in and day out. Then on the food front, God provides for them food to eat, this thing called manna. I don't know if you guys have ever read or heard about manna, but manna is this thing that God provided for them while they were traveling that was like these little like flakes of food that would appear with the dew in the morning time. And so they go out and collect just enough for the day. If they collected more than enough for one day, it would go rotten except for on Fridays. They had to collect double on Fridays so that they didn't have to work and collect food on Saturday so they could have a Sabbath rest. This food was supernatural, like miraculous in multiple ways. So it would rot any other day if they collected double. But if they collected the double on Friday, they had enough for Friday and for Saturday. God miraculously provided for his people. And yet, as we pick up in this story, we're going to see that they weren't satisfied with that. And as we read this, I just really want to encourage you, do not read this text this morning. We all have this tendency. Do not read the text this morning and be like, ah, people of Israel, they should have figured this out. They should have known better. Like that's typically how we read the people of Israel or even the disciples sometimes. We we look at their lives and we're like, oh man, what, what, what stupidity. They should have known better. But we're gifted with perspective, we're gifted with time. And so my encouragement is, as we open this word, as we read it this morning, allow this to be a mirror that shows you your own tendencies in your own heart. Let's allow God to speak to us this morning out of his word as we jump into, he- sorry Hebrews, Numbers 11 verse 4. It says, contemptible people among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites cried again and said, who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at but this manna. Look on, verse, look on down at verse 18, where God responds. He says, Tell the people, purify yourselves in readiness for tomorrow, and you will eat meat because you have cried before the Lord, who will feed us meat? We really had it good in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat and you will eat. You'll eat not for one day or for two days or for five days or 10 days or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and cried out to him, why did we ever leave Egypt? Skip on down to verse 31. A wind sent by the Lord came up and blew quail in from the sea. It dropped them at the camp. All around, three feet off the ground, about a day's journey in every direction. The people were up all that day and night and all the next day gathering the quail. The one who took the least gathered 50 bushels and they spread them out all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before they had chewed it, the Lord's anger burned against the people. The Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named that place Kibroth Hateva. Because they were there they buried the people who had craved the meat. Wasn't that an encouraging story? (laughs) Maybe we should just go home now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I find this story to be straight up depressing, right? Because of two main reasons. This story is depressing because firstly, it shows us our own depravity. It points to our own depravity, our own issues, our own unsatisfaction. The second reason that it's depressing is because there's no heroes. 
As we read through this story, and if we were to read all the other stuff in there, you'd see that Moses leads horribly in this instance. And Joshua is in the story. He doesn't lead well either. And so there's this void of leadership. And as we read this, it's a bit depressing. But what we see is a great pointing to this issue of gluttony and how we get tangled up in gluttony. And so I want for us to look back to the first portion we read and ask the question, how do we get tangled up in gluttony? And what we see from the text is the first thing that typically happens is we create cravings. We create cravings. Cravings are desires. And not all cravings are sin. For example, we crave food, we crave, we crave drink, we crave air, community, love, all of those things. That's normal, or at least usually normal. So the, this week, I was up the back of the room here, and we were working away. It was just Alex and myself in the building. And we're working away very quietly at our computers um, across from each other. And all, all of a sudden, there was this noise. And Alex looks at me like, what the heck, dude? And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry, that's my stomach. So uh, it was like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, my stomach is growling, and Alex will testify about this. It was loud, like my stomach was yelling at me that I needed food. God created us that way. That's normal. And the reason he did that is because God created us with these cravings because they're supposed to remind us that we are dependent on him for his grace and his mercy, just like we're dependent on him for his provision and food. But often cravings are negative as they're sparked by dissatisfaction, familiarity, and or boredom. Those are negative things. Verse 4 tells us that the people, contemptible people among them, had strong cravings. A craving is evil and has potential for birthing gluttony when it says, if only... If only we had meat. If you go into the New Living Translation or the NIV translation, what you'll see is it actually is translated that way. If only we had meat, we would be happy. That's a lie. They wouldn't be happy. They'd find something else to crave, right? If only we had meat. And that actually brings us to the next thought. We'd go from craving to beginning to believe lies. We move from craving to believing lies. Look at verse 5. If you look back there, you'll see that they're reminiscing about the good old days when they were slaves. We remember the free fish that we ate in in Egypt. Did you guys see that when, when we read it the first time? The free fish? That fish was far, far, far from free. If you don't know a lot of details on the story, the people when they were in Egypt were slaves of Pharaoh and he had them in hard, forced labor. Not only that, he was killing their babies to try and control the population. I mean, this food was not free. It came at a hard, high price. Typically, a lie is a distorted truth. And maybe, yeah, they did get to eat fish, but it was definitely not free. When we believe the lie that our satisfaction is found in something or someone other than God, sin has taken a grip on our hearts and gluttony in whatever form is just a small step away. And so the next thing that we see in this spiraling progress downwards for these guys is that we too, like them, digress to dissatisfaction. I didn't know if you picked it up in verse 6, but it's interesting. They say our appetite is gone. Again, that's a lie. Obviously, their appetite is not gone. They have an appetite for something else. And they say, our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at but this manna. Manna was awesome. 
you've got to understand that manna wasn't just like this nasty food that God had provided and was like just okay. If you read into the text, you'll see that it's a miraculous provision, kind of like we described earlier. Like it was there every day, every morning, except for on Saturdays. God provided it. And if you read on to listen to some of the details about it, it says that it actually tasted really good. They could prepare it all these different ways. If you look at the message paraphrase, it says that it tasted like a delicacy cooked in olive oil or the finest of oils. So it didn't taste bad, but these guys were bored and fed up with what God had provided them with. And this reminds us that once we start down the path of craving and lies, we are leading ourselves to be unsatisfied. And so I want to ask the question this morning, what are you, what am I unsatisfied with that God has graciously provided us? As I thought about that question this week, I thought of some silly examples in my own life. If you know me, you know that every year or a couple of years, I change my cars out because I get unsatisfied with, Liz is laughing over here, Uh, I get unsatisfied, that's my wife, Uh, I get unsatisfied with what God has provided me with. My car is fine, like there is nothing wrong with my car, but I'm like, oh, I just, I need something new. And I do the same thing with my hobbies. I'm into mountain biking. You know, you guys have heard me talk about that before. And, And at any given point, I have, you know, three, maybe sometimes more bikes in my garage because I'm always like, well, maybe this one's a little bit better or I should try that one. I get unsatisfied with these things. Or maybe you guys do this thing that I do that's totally ridiculous sometimes. I will go to the fridge, open the doors of the fridge, look inside and say, there's nothing to eat. That's a lie. Like, there's lots of food to eat. Just none of it looks good to me at that time. And that's a funny way of looking at it, but that's what we do. We spiral downward in this, in this thing where we, we get caught up in dissatisfaction, lies, and craving. And we say things like, if I had fill in the blank, I would be happy. That's a lie. Unless it's Jesus, that's a lie. If only I was fill in the blank, I would be complete. Whatever that is, that's a lie. I need just a little more fill in the blank to be satisfied. That's a lie. And what we see here in this story, and even in our own lives, if you can think of examples in your life, that these thoughts build up and increase our cravings, increase our appetite until we gorge ourselves on whatever it is we think will make us satisfied until we become sick. And God responds to his people who are sick, even before they gorge themselves. And he responds to the disease that he sees that's growing inside of his people. And I love that he responds directly to the issue and not just to the symptoms. Let me explain that a little bit. So God, rather than dealing with the symptoms of what's going on with his people, he goes ahead and tackles the disease. You guys don't like it if you go to a doctor and he just tries to help you with the symptoms of whatever sickness you have. You know, God, you know what I'm talking about. Like, imagine if you went to a doctor and you, you're feeling like you have a headache and you have a sore throat and you have an achy body. If he just tried to fix those things for you and not really tackle what the disease is that's making you sick, that would make you upset. And what we see here is that God goes ahead and tackles right what he needs to in verse 20 because he wants to tackle what's going on at the root of the people's hearts. And so if you look back to verse 20 with me, you'll see what he does. The symptom is that they're dissatisfied and they want to eat meat. But he goes ahead and he doesn't say, because you just want meat more than you want manna, I'll I'll give that to you. In verse 20, he says, you know, that whole thing about eating it for a month until it comes out of your nostrils. 
and becomes nauseating to you, which that's not very pleasant. But listen to this. This is the key. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. There's the disease. He's like, this isn't about meat. This isn't about your diet, guys. The issue here is that you are unsatisfied with me. The issue is that you don't care about me. And you've got to see that you have a sickness where you believe that I am not good. And so what I've got for you in your notes there is gluttony is the result of us believing the lie that God is not good, that he is not sufficient. And so we begin to look elsewhere for satisfaction and for fulfillment. I was talking to a friend this week and he said, gluttony is like us giving God the Heisman. I think that's a pretty good description, right? You guys know the Heisman Trophy, the stiff arm? That really is what it's like. When we believe these lies and when we look to other things for satisfaction, we're saying, God, what you have provided is not good enough for me. I need something more. As I was thinking about this, this uh, thought and I was, I was processing this lie that we believe, it reminded me of a verse that's found in Romans chapter 1 that I want for us to look at together. Romans 1.25 says this. It's talking about people who are, um, want nothing to do with God. It says this, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. The truth is that God is enough and the lie that we struggle with is that He is not. So what's the result of us believing and acting on the lie that God is not good, that he is not sufficient. Well, what we see in the text and what we see in the story and maybe even examples in our own life is that God often gives us over to our desires. Like he's like, okay, okay, if this is what you want, have at it. And that's not healthy because what happens is rejecting God leads us to ultimately sickness and death. Look to the story and, and, and you'll see there that he says, hey, uh, this is going to come out of your nostrils. This is going to be nauseating to you. You're going to have so much of it, you won't like it anymore. When I was a young man, when I was probably, you know, six or seven, uh, <clears throat> my mom would ask me, she would come to me and say, hey, what do you want to eat for your birthday? Like that was her way of, of spoiling us and giving us, you know, a nice treat. And I would always ask for this pineapple dip. That was my thing, right? I want the pineapple dip. And so she'd make that for me. And it's in particular on my birthday, she'd let me go to town on that pineapple dip, right? And I'd just be like eating that away. And the issue was this happened for several years until at some point in my life, in my early teenage years, I overdid it. I had too much of the pineapple dip. I didn't get physically sick, but from that moment on, I couldn't stand the pineapple dip. I didn't want to smell it. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want anything to do with it. To this day, I still don't like it. I don't prefer it because I overdid it. This, it was like it, I, I had too much of a good thing. I mean, I used to love this stuff, but now I despise it. And much in the same way, this is what we see happening here in this story. God says, hey, I'm going to warn you. This is what's going to happen. He gives them over and they become sick physically. And then, I mean, the warning is here in the scriptures. Some of them die from their overindulgence, from this sickness that, that comes amongst the people. If you look at the text, it tells us that this place is called Kibroth Hateva, meaning the graves of those who craved. Isn't that a warning? 
the graves of those who craved. There is a reason that God doesn't want us to overindulge. One of them, yeah, is spiritual. We need to believe that he alone is good and satisfying. But physically, God knows what is best for us. Think about what overindulging leads to. Overeating and and problems with our health and obesity leads to complications and ultimately death. Alcoholism. Excess in drinking alcohol leads to destroyed relationships, destroyed life, and destroyed health. Excess in spending leads to debt. Excessive exercise can even be unhealthy. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but there's a disease amongst people who do CrossFit. It's not very common, but when it does happen, it like literally, it's over-exercising and your muscles break down to a point where they liquefy and they're expelled through your body. It's disgusting if you look it up. And it can kill you, like literally can kill you. It's, it's really quite sobering. Excess is not good, and God knows this physically or spiritually or in any sense. Excess is not good. So what is the way out? I mean, that's the purpose of our conversation this morning, right? What is the way out in this situation? Well, look back to Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans 1.25, it says there that they worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator. And what this reminds us is that gluttony is worshiping and serving something other than God. When we, when we struggle with gluttony, what we're doing is we're saying, this thing is where I will find my satisfaction and fulfillment. We're worshiping that thing in that moment. And so the, the key to, to making things right is right worship. Right worship is the key to defeating gluttony. Another way that I wrote this down is gluttony is wrong worship. Anti-gluttony, that's a word I made up, is right and healthy worship. There's an illustration that's been used before and I find it really helpful is that worship in our lives is like a hose that is always on. Imagine with me that I have a garden hose and that the, the faucet, the tap is like literally broken and it's always just pouring out water. That's what worship is like in our lives. So from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, there is worship flowing out of your life. Now that worship may be towards your own comfort, your own self-centeredness. It may be towards your job or your wife or your career or your friendships or your hobbies. I don't know what it is, but what the, the illustration really hinges around is saying, what is getting wet with your worship? Where is that hose pointed? Because there's only one place that it deserves to be pointed, and that is towards Jesus. The warning is here to really ask ourselves daily, what am I worshiping? Are the good things that God has provided me with usurping his position, taking his position in my heart as most important, the throne in my heart? As we look at the story, we're reminded that Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. Remember I said in the story that there were no heroes? That was true, but the beauty of this story is that it creates for us an appetite for a hero. As you read this story, you're like, man, we really need somebody to help us. The rest of the text points us in that direction towards Jesus. He's the ultimate hero. And it's kind of interesting to note how that happens. If you read into the rest of this story, which, by the way, some of that's in our reading guide this week that's in your listening guide. But if you read into some of the dialogue that happens between Moses and and between God, it's really interesting because Moses says something like this. He says, I'd rather die than carry the burden of these people. He says, I'm done with these people. They're complaining about food again. And I'm done with it. They're like a bunch of babies that I, they're not my kids. I, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'd, I'd rather die than carry the burden of, of leading these people. Doesn't that sound exactly opposite to Jesus? 
Jesus says to us, I'll carry your burdens and ultimately I will die for you. And that's why Jesus is the only hero. That's why Jesus alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. Right worship is the key to defeating gluttony. So here's some practical implications for us today. For you, if you're a believer or an unbeliever, if you'd say you're a Christian or not. For the message today, it's pretty simple. The first thing that I encourage us to do is to identify in our hearts, in our lives, wrong worship. Look at the areas and say, what are the things that I'm worshiping? What are the things that I'm looking to for satisfaction and fulfillment? The second thing is to repent of those things and say, God, I need your help with this. And then thirdly, it's not enough to just be like, I need to stop worshiping that. Like I said, that hose is always on. You've got to point it back in the right direction. And so the third thing that we need to do after repenting is to move towards right worship. All three of these things are important. And so if you're not a Christian here in this room today, the invitation is here. Identify what it is that you think will bring you happiness in your life, whether that's your job or your career or, or maybe your family or relationships, your hobby, your finances. All of those things will ultimately let you down. And what I want to say to you very clearly this morning is that Jesus alone is the one who can bring you satisfaction and fulfillment. And so this morning, you have an opportunity, if you're even not a Christian, to respond and to say, I'm worshiping the wrong things in my life, and I need to repent of that and move towards a relationship with Jesus. If you are a Christian in the room today, the conviction is here for us to say, what are things that are distracting us from worshiping King Jesus? Because He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our praise and our life and our attention, our affections. So what does right worship sound like? I want to give you guys a couple of examples as we kind of think about this. So if the solution is right worship, what does that even sound like? And there's a bunch of awesome scriptures in the, in the Bible that point us towards what right worship sounds like. But there's a couple that I want to point out. Psalms 34 verse 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that awesome in the light of our conversation about gluttony? I was reading this verse this week and I was like, this is so good. Like, this verse makes a lot more sense to me today. Like, I've heard this verse a bunch of times, but when you think of it in light of the fact that I look to food or I look to all these other things for satisfaction and fulfillment, it's only God alone who can satisfy my craving in my life. I need to taste and see that He is good. Nothing else will satisfy like He does. It's a reminder that even when I'm enjoying the things that He has blessed me with, that I need to praise Him and celebrate Him. Because if I was doing that, right worship would, would stay the way that it needs to. What if next time that I'm enjoying an incredible meal, rather than overeating, I would simply say to myself, God, thank you for giving me taste buds. Thank you for this amazing combinations of, of ingredients that's just, that's just, I'm enjoying so much. Thank you for providing. Because I think if we started to worship God in the things that we struggle in excess in, we will keep worship in its right place. We will keep Jesus in th- as the, th- the king on the throne in our hearts. And so we need to taste and see that God is good. If you go to John 6, 35, you'll see this. It says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Again, this scripture makes a lot more sense in light of our conversation today. 
That means that everything else that we look to for satisfaction will ultimately make us hungry again, except for Jesus. Worshipping Jesus is the key to defeating gluttony. So let's keep Jesus as king on the throne of our hearts. Let's keep the worship hose pointed towards him. This is our mission. This is our daily battle. This is our, maybe it's better to say, this is our hourly battle, right? I don't know about you, but I'll find myself starting the day out great. And a couple of hours in, I'm like totally off over here in the weeds, distracted by something, obsessing over something, thinking about something, looking to it for satisfaction, fulfillment, and meaning. And so hour by hour, we need God. We need his Holy Spirit to lead us and to bring us to conviction and to to right living so that we don't find ourselves gorging ourselves on things that do not satisfy. We need his grace for this. We need his grace to win this battle. We need his spirit to lead and to convict us. If we go back to the words of that song that I quoted earlier on in the message, success is definitely not equated with excess. Success is found and is defined by right worship, by right worship. We're going to have an opportunity here in a few moments. I'm going to pray for us and give us some direction. Then we're going to sing. And when we sing, we're going to sing a song that I just love because it is the sound of right worship. The song says, my hope, that's, that's a good way to start, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the sound of right worship. If we had that heart, if we had that posture each and every day, that is how we are called to live as Christians. That is how we're called to honor God, to honor Christ in our lives. And so I want to encourage you guys that if you are going to indulge in anything, indulge in Jesus, indulge in his grace, indulge in his goodness, because you can never overindulge in him. He is literally the only thing that is like that. And so my encouragement for you and my encouragement for me today is that we would look to him alone for satisfaction. We look to him alone for our meaning and our purpose. And even in these next few moments, as we have some time to process what he's been saying this morning, that we would respond in the way that we need to, that we would respond with right worship here this morning. That's my encouragement for us. Let me pray for us.